The scripture reading this morning is taken from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Matthew 4, 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. As before I begin, I just, I, I, the, the song that we sang before uh, the scripture reading, I, it always cracks me up. At least the, what the folklore of it is, is that Martin Luther, who wrote those lyrics, they actually took bar, old bar songs and set his lyrics to uh, bar songs. So the melody we sang was actually like a, a rousing bar song. So I can just picture them slug in there, mead, well, uh, singing, singing that, but anyway. <laughs> uh, the last time uh, that I spoke, I began by playing a Beatles song, which, of course, caught the attention of copyright bots, and they took it offline until Dale was able to mute off that section. Now, Sam somehow gets away with showing full scenes from The Lion King, and yet I get in trouble for 20 seconds of a song. So, man, sorry about that. Dale, just trying to keep Dale busy. <laughs> just kidding, he's way too busy as it is. Anyway, I thought, you know, why not? Let's try this again. <laughs> Couldn't hurt, right? But this time I thought I'd play it safe and use a commercial. I figure it's a commercial, so it's free advertising. So let's, uh, let's watch that right now. Marsha, what happened? Peter hit me on the nose with a football. I can't go to the dance like this. Well, I'm sure it was an accident, sweetheart. An eye for an eye. That's what Dad always says. I never said that, honey. Shut up! Time to teach Peter a lesson. Marsha, eat a Snickers. Why? You get a little hostile when you're hungry. Better? Better. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Jan, this isn't about you. <laughs> it never is! <laughs> anyway, <laughs> there's an awesome one with Betty White that's worth watching, although the humor is a little more adult-themed, so I decided not to show that one. But anyway, when you're 
you, you are not you when you're hungry. Isn't that a great line? I know I feel like I'm not me when I'm hungry. Uh, in our family at home, I think like most people probably these days, we call it being hangry, right? Hungry and angry. So you're hangry. And our family has actually embraced this as a reality. Uh, if one of us is getting really grumpy or overly emotional approaching a mealtime, we've gotten to the place where we know not to bother trying to engage uh, with a reasonable argument. So instead of saying, Greg, calm down, it's not a big deal that you can't figure out the right settings for your new Google Wi-Fi, even though you've tried it four days in a row, throwing it against the wall won't help. Instead of saying that, of course, that would only make things worse. So instead, my family knows just to say, Dad, you're just hangry, eat something, and then you can figure it out after dinner. Now, of course, after dinner, when I'm calm again, I still won't be able to get it working, but that's a different story and one for which I, well, one for which I blame Bell. But uh, anyway, settings, PPOE settings or whatever it is. Ugh. Anyway, you're not you when you're hungry. In the passage that Peggy read for us, we hear of a time that Jesus was hungry. But unlike me, he remained himself even when he was hungry. It was a hunger that I, in my privilege as a white, as a middle-class Canadian, I can't actually personally relate to uh, this kind of hunger. Uh, sadly, many people around the globe can relate to this hunger. Now, I get hangry after a few hours of not eating. And here we hear that Jesus has fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. 40. And yet he remained himself. Now, as we look at this story, um, I want to set up the scene for you. Last week, we looked at the story where Jesus was transfigured, where he was briefly transformed before three of his followers into this brilliant, eye-blindingly white glory in this amazing mountaintop experience. However, chronologically speaking, in the life of Jesus, the transfiguration comes a long time after Jesus' time in the wilderness. Prior to his time in the wilderness, essentially all that's happened is Jesus has been born and he grew up. Then along comes John the Baptist, who is a prophet who came to prepare the way for Jesus' arrival on the scene. And John is baptizing people in the River Jordan. Jesus himself is baptized by John, and as we read in uh, Matthew 3.15, after being baptized, it says this, uh, uh, sorry, it's 3.16, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending on, descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So picture this. Jesus is coming out of the water and this glorious moment of the spirit alighting on him and God's voice speaking from heaven and saying, this is my beloved son. I am very pleased with him. Now you would think that this would be the moment 
That Jesus would then be raised up, glorified, put on a throne, or at least something like the mountaintop experience of the transfiguration. But no, that's not what happens. Instead of receiving a king's welcome after being revealed as God's own son, instead of this, the Spirit of God leads Jesus into the wilderness. He's sent out into a lonely, desolate place by himself. Well, it's worse than being by himself. He's sent into a lonely, desolate place to be tempted by the devil. Now, this is not exactly what we would consider a king's welcome. Yet, it is exactly the first thing that Jesus must do as he begins his vocation as the Messiah. So, Jesus, proclaimed as God's beloved son, is sent into the desert by the Holy Spirit of God to be tested by the devil. And for this mission, he doesn't bring a cooler of snacks and uh, drinks with him, but instead he fasts for 40 days. Now in scripture, uh, when we read about fasting, a typical fast was to not eat or drink any food or any liquids except for water. Now this uh, Wednesday, some of us kind of discussed fast, discussed fasting uh, at our Ash Wednesday prayer time. And there is one instance in the book of Daniel where Daniel simply fasts from delicacies, meat, and wine for three weeks. But this fast of Daniel is actually an exception to biblical fasting. It is not what the Bible usually means when it talks about fasting. That being said, it sure would make fasting a lot easier if it was simply giving up delicacies. You know, I'm sorry, I can't have any caviar and white truffles on my cracker today. I'm self-denying for the Lord. But anyway, back to Jesus, all joking aside. So Jesus' fast is no food or drink except for water, uh, because we know you would die. I think it's three days that you would die after without water. Forty days and forty nights. Now this turn of phrase means that he wasn't only fasting during the daytime. As, you know, some fasts and, and religious fasts are you to fast during the day, and then you can eat when the sun goes down. And he wasn't simply fasting at night, which we all do when we're sleeping, hence the name break fast, breakfast. He did not eat or drink anything but water for 40 days and 40 nights. So it's no wonder that he was hungry. Uh, this word is he was famished. A Snickers bar uh, would not help this kind of hunger. Now, the number 40 is significant. Not only in the scripture is the number 40 a picture of something of being a really long time, but it is also in the story of the Israelites. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is presented as kind of a sort of a new Moses. Uh, his ministry is paralleled with Moses uh, and, and the story of the Israelites. It begins with escaping a mass-murdering monarch as a baby, being called out of Egypt. And then here on the edge of the promised land, Matthew is drawing to mind the story of when the Lord called Israel his child. And then after fleeing Egypt, they wandered the desert for 40 years. Now, of course... Israel's wandering the desert for 40 years was because they forgot who they were as God's children. 
Jesus, on the other hand, is fasting in the desert for 40 days because he is God's son. He, like the Israelites, was revealed as God's child. But then he goes to fast in the desert for 40 days because he knows who he is and why he has come. Now, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, um, or if you've been around um, our, our church or perhaps some other churches in this time of the year, you've probably heard about this thing called Lent, the season of Lent. It is a time of journeying with Jesus to the cross is kind of the simplest way that we tend to phrase it. Well, Lent itself is actually based on Jesus' 40 days in the desert. It is 40 days. Now, at Lent... Uh, it's actually 46 days long um, because in the Christian tradition, uh, Sunday is always a day of resurrection. So Sundays don't count as a day of Lent. Uh, so it's actually 40 days long, uh, not including Sundays. Um, so this, t- this 40 days of Lent is meant to be journeying with Jesus to be in the desert. It's meant to be a time of fasting and prayer alongside of Jesus with an awareness that our vocation as his disciples is the same as Jesus' vocation as the Messiah, in the sense that we are to move toward the cross and into resurrection with him. Now, while the New Testament doesn't directly command us to fast with words like, you must fast, but Jesus does speak about fasting on a few occasions, and he speaks about it with the expectation that his followers will fast. In Matthew 6, 16, Jesus says, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. And when you fast, and he goes on to, to paint a picture of what it looks like when they do fast. And then later in Matthew 9, 15, Jesus speaks in a parable about how when he, the bridegroom, is gone and his followers will fast. Now, in getting to the main point of the pa- this passage, I don't want to spend too much time on fasting per se. But I think it is important for our purposes in understanding the passage uh, that we note some things about fasting. And for this, I'm going to, I lean heavily on Richard Foster, who is kind of a, a spiritual disciplines guru for making ancient practice accessible to us. In his book called Celebration of Discipline, Foster writes, more than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. We cover up what is inside us with food and other good things, but in fasting, these things surface. Anger, bitterness, jealousy, strife, fear. And if they are within us, they will surface during fasting. At first, we will rationalize that our anger is due to our hunger. But then we will realize that we are angry because the spirit of anger is within us. And we can rejoice, though, in this knowledge because we know that healing is available through the power of Christ. Fasting reveals the things that control us. And this is one of the disciplines of Lent, to open ourselves up to discovering the things that control us. Now, these things that control us in and of themselves aren't necessarily actually bad things, but it is our relationship to those things that controlling us that is unhealthy. So one obvious example, and I think of this because uh, it's like 
there's an article on it almost every second day about the alcohol consumption that has increased significantly during COVID. So one obvious example is if you can't give up alcohol for six days in a week, that should be a revelation to you that your relationship to alcohol is unhealthy and that it has control over you that it shouldn't have. Now, do I think that everyone needs to give up alcohol? Absolutely not. I think that alcohol in and of itself isn't actually a bad thing. Uh, And I I would say, and I I enjoy and find some alcohol to be a good thing. But if it controls me, if it controls you, that is something to pay attention to. So it is not about the thing itself being bad, but it's your relationship to the thing. And fasting... Giving up something teaches us, shows us what types of control these things have over us. Now, of course, the purpose of Lent and fasting and other spiritual practices aren't simply to reveal to us the things that control us. Lent and fasting and other spiritual practices aren't about guilt and finding reasons to feel guilty, but even more so, they are to bring us beyond that to a deeper realization that God alone is worthy of our affection and releasing our control to. These things are to bring us to the deeper realization of who we truly are to God, that we are not the things that control us, we are not the things that we are unhealthily attached to, but that we are beloved children of God. And as we discover this deeper truth, then our relationship to these things can begin to shift. They will lose their control over us. They no longer are in power over us in the place of God, but we become in power over them as we are under the love of God. But these power dynamics, they will never shift as long as we remain blind to them. Or as long as we remain indifferent to their control over us. Or as long as we don't care that in the hierarchy of our lives, God is on the bottom shelf. And there is a voice that is working to keep it that way. To keep our lives under the often hidden control of seemingly powerless things. Let's read the passage again. And let's pay attention to some of the names and the activities of this voice. After after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. He was famished. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written... People shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's a scripture passage that Jesus is quoting. Interestingly enough, the scripture passages that Jesus quotes is actually from that time when children of God, Israel, were called out of Egypt. And God gave them these passages and they carried these passages with them through their 40 days uh, in the wilderness. And here Jesus is coming back to this same, these same passages within his 40 days in the wilderness. 
Sorry, I said 40 days for the Israelites. It was 40 years. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, so a third time, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Matthew tells us that Jesus was tempted three times by the devil. And so hopefully you notice that there were three kind of main words that describe this being. Devil, Satan, and tempter. Now the first two, devil and Satan, are used fairly interchangeably in the New Testament, as is the case in this passage. Both words mean enemy, adversary, Accuser. Satan is one who accuses, who finds fault, who brings charges against. Some of us, when we hear of Satan or the devil, of course, we picture some dude in red tights with horns and a pitchfork. And it sounds like a fairy tale villain material. For the writers of scripture, however, Satan was not a myth, but is a very real being. Now, N.T. Wright uh, does what I think is a good job of describing uh, Satan. He writes, The biblical picture of the Satan is thus of a non-human and non-divine quasi-personal force which seems bent on attacking and destroying creation in general and humankind in particular, and above all on thwarting God's project of remaking the world and human beings through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Now, C.S. Lewis famously wrote that we make um, three mistakes on how we think about Satan. We either... Oh, sorry, that we make two mistakes, I think, in how we think about Satan. We either think Satan is behind every corner, causing every bad thing that happens, and so we take him way too seriously... Or, on the other hand, we think Satan is simply fictitious, made up to scare children and the naive. And so we just ignore it and pretend it isn't real. Now, N.T. Wright actually adds a third mistake that we make. And this is the mistake of seeing Satan simply as another way to describe our subconscious shallow side, that dark side of ourselves that leads us in wayward directions. Now, although I do, I personally do believe in the reality of the devil, um, whether you're in a place of believing Satan is a real, non-human, non-divine, quasi-personal force or not, um, I think we need to hear what this passage has to teach us. And I think we need to be aware uh, of this voice, this voice that speaks to us and tries to lead us away. 
Jesus is tempted three times by the devil, who verse 3 calls the tempter. And this third word, tempter, adds to our understanding of what the accuser tries to do in our lives and is trying to do here. This word means to put something to the test. To be tempted is to be put to the test. And this test is to find out the true nature of someone, to assess and discover someone's true value. To tempt someone is to prove who they really are. And the way that Satan tempts us is to put before us something that intrigues us, something that lures us, that attracts us in order to find out who we are. However, Satan is the accuser who seeks to find fault in who we are. And so Satan finds our weaknesses, finds cracks in us that he can take advantage of. It's kind of like using a crowbar or the back of a hammer uh, to open a window that's been painted shut or to perhaps, you know, peel uh, boards apart. You look for the small gap, any place that you can get the crowbar or the hammer in to leverage it. And usually you kind of have to wiggle, you do a little bit and you maybe you'll get a millimeter and then you try to move it in some more and peel a little bit more and a little bit more. And what begins is this little tiny crack over time, and you're able to slowly pry it open to the point that you can actually then open the window, and you can enter the house through this open window. Satan finds those little cracks in our personalities and works to slowly pry them open. And once they are open, he accuses us. He whispers in our ears, I told you that's who you are. I told you that that's your worth. And we see ourselves as a failure. We give up hope. And then we stop resisting and allow those cracks to become gaping holes. In this story of Jesus being tempted by Satan, the enemy tries to get Jesus to forget who he is. The enemy is looking for any place that he can open, uh, uh, bring cracks in Jesus' personhood. Jesus is famished from hunger, and Satan is testing him by offering things that, well, are actually not, they're good things. They're not only good, but they are actually already Jesus's. Satan tempts Jesus to see if he is really God's beloved son, which he is. He tempts Jesus to see if God really loves him and will care for him and has his best interests in mind, which he does. And he tempts, him to, he takes, tempts Jesus to take his place. This is Jesus' rightful place of authority over the kingdoms of the world. And Satan is just tempting him to take that now instead of later, but in a way that Jesus will need to forget who he is and worship Satan instead of remaining in relationship with his beloved father. But even when hungry from fasting, Jesus never loses sight of who he is and why he has come. He is God's beloved son, the Messiah. And he has come to defeat Satan through sacrifice, not through wielding power and not through forcing his father's hand. And here's the thing. The enemy wants to accuse you. 
wants to test who you are and to find you full of fault, to convince you that you are worthless or that, or obviously that you are in total control so that you don't notice the things that are actually controlling you. The enemy wants to feed on your insecurities, to doubt that you are God's beloved child, to whisper accusations that we already have the small window of belief so that he can crack it open and ransack your inner self. The accuser wants you to think more highly of yourselves than you ought so that you find your identity in the wrong places. And then that way when you fall, it will be from an even greater height. The accuser tests us, and here's the thing, we will fail at avoiding temptation, but even when we do fail, we still pass the biggest test of our identity of who we are. Because our identity is is as beloved by God always passes the test of the enemy. And as we know that our identity is the beloved, as we hold firm to this, we know we can always come and find forgiveness through repentance. And what's more, the surer that we are of our identity, the less tempted we are to find our identity elsewhere. The less tempted we are to believe the lies of the enemy telling us we aren't beloved. But why why would God's Spirit send Jesus into the wilderness to be tested by Satan? Why would he willingly endure this hunger and this battle with the enemy? It was as the book of Hebrews tells us, for the joy that was set before him. This is the beginning of his journey to the cross. It was the joy of freeing us from the lying, accusing voice of the enemy. The joy of a father knowing that his children are listening to the right voices. No loving father wants their child to listen to the lies of a bully who makes them feel ashamed or unlovable. No loving father wants their child to listen to lies of, or, of influencers who try to lead you into unhealthy patterns, the lies of gossips and slanderers who try to make you look down on others. And so Jesus endured Satan's temptations and ultimately defeated the enemy on the cross so that for the joy of his children hearing only the voice of truth that we are his beloved children. There are many things in life that will tempt us, that lure us, as that song we sang says, and test who we are. When wrestling with my own temptations and failing miserably most of the time, especially with little things that don't seem that significant, I've often fallen into the trap of thinking just that. It isn't really that bad. It's just this little thing. But for myself, when I question, is this bad? How bad is it really? then it's so easy to justify, well, it's not that bad. It's not that big of a deal. Just this one small time won't hurt anything. However, something that I find more motivating uh, than the question of, is this bad, is the question, is this me? Is this who I am? Is this who I want to be? 
Is having this pattern or this thing having control over me who I really am? As God's beloved child, the answer is that Jesus came to silence the voice of the accuser, to release the controlling grip of that which is neither God nor your identity as God's beloved child. It isn't about feeling guilt for the things that we've done wrong when we've given in to temptation. It is about knowing our identity as God's beloved children and holding on to that. And when we have this, we can then confess, repent, to turn from these things, to acknowledge that we are sorry in humility and to receive the love and to hear the voice of one who loves us instead of hearing the voice of one who hates us and seeks to destroy us. It's not always easy. We are going to fall into listening to the voice of the tester. But our identity is sure, and Christ's victory is even surer. So let's journey together through the wilderness places of life towards the cross. For the joy of knowing that Jesus has defeated the enemy, silences the voice of the accuser, and that even when we are hungry, we may know and be who we are as God's beloved children. Uh, please pray with me. Jesus, you were tempted by the devil, and yet the devil uh, was not able to lead you away from your identity, from who you are. You leaned on the words of Scripture to give you strength and words. And you held on to that, I think, held on to the Father proclaiming over you that you are God, is God's beloved Son with whom he is well pleased. And Jesus, you desire nothing but that for us, that we would hold on to, that we would receive and believe and live out our identity as your beloved children with whom you are very pleased. So that we can discern between the voice of your spirit and the voice of the accuser who tries to lead us away from your victory and from the fullness of life that you desire for us. And so we offer ourselves to you, Holy Spirit, Jesus, our Savior, and God, our Father. Be with us as we journey uh, through the wildernesses of our life. Amen.